0: Good morning, church. Good morning, live stream Church. We're glad to have you here. If you are a guest, if you've been a guest over the last three Sundays, you may be thinking to yourself, who's the new guy up there on the stage? I'm not the new guy. I'm the old guy. But I did ask Scott Blount to preach that sermon series on the art of neighboring. And one of the main reasons was because he and Peggy lived that command out as well as or better than anyone I know certainly better than I do, and you could tell through his teaching what moral authority he has in teaching that. So I'm sure you agree with me. We all appreciate what he did there. If we put that into practice, it will be a blessing in our neighborhoods and to ourselves, and we'll advance the kingdom. But let's move on to our new sermon series, Obey Everything. What did you want to be when you grew up, when you were a child? I've been asking that of a number of people as they've been coming in. That was a survey that was recently done with a number of children, 12 years old and under. Here are the top 10 vocations that they aspire to. Doctor, veterinarian, police officer, firefighter, scientist, engineer, musician, athlete, teacher, astronaut. Somehow, Ernie, a preaching minister, didn't make it up there. I don't know how that happened. And maybe your vocation didn't necessarily make it up there either. But the second habit of highly effective people, Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. The second habit is to begin with the end in mind. Begin with the end in mind. And that is an acknowledgement that all things have two creations. First, there is a creation in the mind or the imagination that is followed by a physical creation. Like a building follows a blueprint. And if we do not intentionally focus on that which we want to be and who we want to be, we'll find ourselves at the mercy of other people or circumstances, but other people who have an agenda for us. Someone has said, if your ladder is leaning against the wrong wall, then every step you take is taking you to the wrong place more quickly. What I want to do this morning is make sure that our ladder is leaning against the right wall. We're going to begin with the end in mind today, and that is God's end or God's goal for us. We're going to go all the way to the end of the book of Matthew. In fact, the last three verses of the entire gospel of Matthew to see what our end is. What I mean by that is what God's goal is for us in life. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. It is to be a disciple of Jesus. That's his end goal for us. And there's a parallel track to that, and that is to make disciples of Jesus. Help other people to do that. We cannot help others to become disciples if we ourselves are not disciples of Jesus. So what does it mean to be a disciple? Well, let's break it down into two parts. Number one is to be baptized. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, a baptism is an immersion in water of a repentant believer. I trust most of us have done that. I'm I'm sure most of us have. I trust most of us have done that. If we haven't, let's make sure we take care of that today. But I'm not going to camp out on baptism, at least not today, or at least not right now because of that fact. So once we've been saved and that happened at your baptism, baptism is the occasion of salvation. Once we're Christian and we've been saved, then part two, talking about being a disciple, is to obey everything that Jesus commanded. Oh, is that all? Yes, that's all. Obey everything that Jesus commanded. Now, I want to uh, take a step back here and Ask and answer a question about the commands of Jesus. On the first Sunday of every month, we have what we call a Discover Luncheon. And it is for our church guests who are looking for a church home or church shopping, as they say. And so you come and find out some of our basic beliefs. I teach on four basic areas for a few minutes, and then we have lunch. And the first area has to do with our unity. And I say, we are unified in our church, and that unity is based on the Word of God. And I use this passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, where Paul writes, you are members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, May I tell you something that I'm sure you already know about the apostles and prophets of Jesus. They are dead. They are all dead. So when Paul says that the church, and he's one of them, by the way, the apostle Paul, says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, does that mean that we've got somehow the bones of an apostle or a prophet underneath this building as part of the foundation? No, obviously not. He's talking about the teaching of Jesus, apostles, and prophets, which we have in the form of the New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament. The commands of Jesus are recorded in every one of those 27 books. But we're going to restrict ourselves in this sermon series to the Gospel of Matthew. So that's what I start That's the first section that I teach on in the Discover class and Discover Luncheon. So last month, I was teaching on that. I I taught it three times on that particular Sunday because Scott was preaching. And one young lady that I I had came back to me after, after that presentation. She said, well, wait a minute. Are you saying you think the Bible is the Word of God? She said, it's a good book, no doubt. There's some good stuff in there, but it was written by human men just like Anybody else, fallible, capable of mistakes, written hundreds of years after the fact. You can't be serious about the Bible's the Word of God. I get my truth, some of it from the Bible, but uh, in all kinds of other places. And we never got past section one with her. Now, her questions are legitimate. Her, Her objections are legitimate. She's not the only one who wonders about that. There may be some people here this morning who wonder about it. And I commend her for her courage to even speak up and voice them because a lot of people may think about those things, but they don't necessarily raise that question. But she did. I know of young people been raised in this church. It doesn't just happen in this church, but in this church, gone off to Bible college, learned some things about the Bible that weren't really true, but they accepted them, came to the point where they didn't believe the Bible was God's word anymore, and now they're not even Christians any longer. So this is an important question, and this is what I want to spend a few minutes addressing this morning. This is the question of the New Testament canon. The word canon means a list. It's the list of those 27 books that comprise the New Testament that we accept as the inspired word of God. How come there's 27 and not 28? and not 25 or 24? How did those 27 books come to be accepted as the authoritative, inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God? Michael Kruger, in his book, Canon Revisited, suggests there there are basically three characteristics of these books that wound up in the New Testament canon. They are, number one, divine characteristics, number two, apostolic origin, and number three, church reception. That is near universal, not universal, but near unanimous reception by the early church. So that these books had divine characteristics. In other words, when you read them, and I know you've had this experience, there is something about the content of these books themselves that reflects the authorship of God. Just like when the Bible says you look out at creation and creation reflects the fact that there is a creator God, there's something about these 27 books when you read them that reflects God. John Calvin said this, As far as sacred scripture is concerned, it is clearly crammed with thoughts that could not be humanly conceived. Let each of the prophets be looked into. None will be found who does not far exceed human measure. Consequently, those for whom prophetic doctrine is tasteless ought to be thought of lacking taste buds, end quote. Who knew John Calvin had a sense of humor? But maybe you've had this experience. I had it this morning. I was reading in Mark chapter 6. I said, wow, no human being could have come up with what's actually recorded right there. When I hold this up right here, I'm going to ask you, what form of writing is this? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them, so on and so forth. What form of writing or or document, is this called? A scroll. That's right. Now, in the first century and before the first century, right up, actually, before Christ, all the way up until about the fourth century A.D., this was the primary form of a book, was a scroll. All the Old Testament manuscripts that we have are in the form of scrolls. Now, the scroll, the writing on the scroll, was on one side. The back side would be left blank, and when it was rolled up, the writing would be on the inside, right, to protect the content and the writing. Which resulted in a lot of unused space, really, a lot of wasted space. You couldn't use the backside of the scroll. Scrolls were formed by taking sheets of papyrus paper and gluing them together, or parchment, or parchment paper. You know the difference between papyrus paper? and parchment paper anybody Papyrus is plant-based paper parchment was animal skins that were prepared prepared and made to be like paper Okay What form of writing is this Book we call it a book In terms of ancient manuscripts this is called a codex this form codex. A codex was made by taking sheets of papyrus or parchment and and folding it and then taking another one and folding it on top of that and taking another one and folding it on top of that. Codexes began to be used a little bit around the first century AD. Now, an ancient codex manuscript could hold as many as 250 pages. And one of the great advantages was, of course, you could write on both sides of the pages of paper, so you could put a lot more content in there. Now, as I said, the Greco-Roman world in general did not begin using, adopting the codex as a primary form of book publication until around 400 A.D. However, modern scholars now know that the early Christians adopted the Codex around the turn of the 1st century, late 1st century, early 2nd century. When I say 2nd century, that's the 100s, 110, 120, 130, that's 2nd century. Early 1st century is 10, 20, 30, multiples of 10. The, co- the Christians dramatically preferred the Codex. They adopted the Codex as, as publishers of books hundreds of years before their own historical background, which was Jewish background, and contrary to that, and contrary to their Greco-Roman environment and culture. Now, the $64,000 question is, Why? Why were these Christians en masse adopting the Codex hundreds of years before the Greco-Roman culture? The most likely answer is because a Codex could do something that no scroll could do. And that was hold all four Gospels in one book. And also hold all of the letters of the Apostle Paul in one volume take different compositions and put them into a single volume where they could be easily accessed and read the vast majority of New Testament manuscripts that we have and we have thousands of ancient New Testament manuscripts are in the form of codex and not scroll now what that means is that these early Christians very early in the process, very early on this time continuum after the death of Jesus and into the apostolic age were beginning to make decisions about what was canon and what was not canon, what was the Word of God and what was not the Word of God. J.K. Eliot, textual scholar, writes, Canon and codex go hand in hand in the sense that the adoption of a fixed canon could more easily be controlled and promulgated when the Codex was the means of gathering together originally separate compositions. The books that they would include in the Codex said something about what they understood to be inspired Scripture. The books that were left out of the Codex said something about those books as well, that they were not accepted as inspired Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 13. Let's put that up there. Now I tried to get fancy here and take a screenshot of this from BibleGateway.com from this particular version, but probably many of you cannot read that. Let me tell you what it says. 2nd Timothy 4:13. Paul is writing to Timothy. He says, "Bring the cloak that I left in Troas with Carpus when you come, and the books, especially the parchments." Now, this version is the Mount's Reverse Interlinear New Testament version. When you go on BibleGateway.com, which is a great study tool, you hit the drop-down menu, and you can look at a verse of Scripture or a chapter of Scripture in a 100 different versions, and this is one of them. This interlinear will show you the English word and the corresponding Greek word from which it was translated. So it's useful if you ever want to do that. Now, what's interesting here is Paul appears to be making a distinction between two types of literature. He's in jail. He wants Timothy to bring him his books and his parchments. The Greek word for book is biblion. Now, textual scholars tell us that is most likely a reference to the Old Testament books that were written on scrolls. That's just the way that word was used. He's saying, bring me my Old Testament scrolls. The next word is is, I don't know if you can see it, is membrana. That's a transliteration from the Latin. The way that word was used, we know from other references during that time period, it was always used of a codex. And so Paul is saying, bring me the scrolls and bring me my codices. That's the plural for codex. My codex is this book. And because he's talking about Scripture, it's likely he's differentiating between the Old Testament and some Christian writings. Now let me give you another quote from Michael Kruger. He says, Given Paul's knowledge of the canonical Gospels, we have to at least consider the possibility that Gospel accounts may have been contained within these codices that he's asking for. Okay, so... What does he mean, given Paul's knowledge of the canonical Gospels? What are the canonical Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Reference, 1 Timothy 5.18 is where Paul, in his first letter to Timothy, quotes Jesus. He quotes Jesus. Now, that could have just been from oral tradition that was passed on to to Paul, but it also happens to be a quote from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. So Kruger is saying, giving Paul's knowledge of the canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have to at least consider the possibility that Gospel accounts may have been contained within these codices. So Paul is saying, as early as whenever he wrote his letters, and I think there's a good case that every book in the New Testament was written prior to AD 70. What happened in AD 70? Yes, the destruction of Jerusalem. And no New Testament writer mentions that after the fact, and they would have. But in any case, so Paul could very well be saying, bring me my Old Testament scrolls and the codex with gospel content, my books with the gospel content. That early on, that early on. The other theory is two competing theories, either gospels or copies of Paul's own letters. Authors back then carried around copies of their own letters and Paul very likely did, he would send them to churches and say, circulate this letter because he knew he was writing the word of God. He said, have this written, have this read aloud in the churches. And Peter, the apostle, wrote about Paul's letters and identified them as what? Scripture. On the same par with the Old Testament, he said the letters of the apostle Paul, Scripture, which means as early as in the lifetime of the apostles, they were recognizing what they wrote was Scripture. And the churches were recognizing that as well and making these collections, gathering together what we know as the canon. It was not universal reception early on in the church because it wasn't magic, it was an historical process, but it was near unanimous reception by the church I go into all of that and that's just the tip of the iceberg of what we could talk about in this area of New Testament canon to assure you we're gonna be spending several months in the Gospel of Matthew studying the commands of Jesus I want you to know I want you to feel this that when you read the Matthew that is in your Bible or on your phone or on the computer for all intents and purposes You are reading what Matthew wrote in the autograph. That's the original document. You are reading the actual words of the actual Jesus, the actual commands of the actual Jesus, the actual actions of the actual Jesus. We can be just as confident in this book as we are the trustworthiness of God himself. God has done his part. His part was to send Jesus to die for our sins, to redeem us, and then to provide for us documents that tell us of these redemptive acts and explain them to us and give us commands by which to live the abundant life and a life that is pleasing and brings glory to God and have that available to the early church and received by the early church and then copied And providentially, God preserved those documents for us right on down to today when we have our Bibles. He's done his part. We have to do our part. What's our part? How can we obey the commands? How can we obey everything if we don't know what those commands are? When you came up out of the waters of baptism, did the Holy Spirit digitally download all the commands of Jesus into your brain? I hope your answer is no. It does not work that way. The Holy Spirit's ministry to us is not teaching its power. He indirectly teaches us through the scriptures that he inspired. Now I I want to close up with an illustration here, and it's a political illustration. So please do not applaud and please do not boo. Don't get distracted because this comes from the political realm. I'm not saying anything political here, but I do want to make a point with it. And so two weeks ago, I think it was a, couple, a week, two weeks ago, the president gave a State of the Union address. At the conclusion of the State of the Union, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi did what? She ripped up the speech behind him on camera. Like I said, don't cheer, don't boo, don't care. But what was she communicating there? There's no question about this. She was communicating disdain and contempt for President Trump. She said so herself. Now, if I, if I, now our president, our king, our lord, our master, our ruler, our savior... Jesus, God, and here's his message to us. If I was to stand up here and rip this Bible up, you would be outraged and rightfully so. And I'm not going to do that. And I never would. And then you wouldn't want to either. But I wonder if there's not a figurative way to do that. Not a literal way, but a figurative way. Maybe a couple. Number one is to deliberately disobey the commands of Jesus. I'm sorry to say I've done that and repent but to deliberately disobey God's commands okay I know you said this I'm going to do this rip but another way is to willfully and deliberately remain ignorant of everything that Jesus commanded of his commands like I said God has done his part we have to do our part and our part is to read study learn and obey At the conclusion of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 24, Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes and torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and does not obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. When Jesus had finished these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching as he taught with real authority. So, we listen, we obey, and we build our house on the solid rock of the apostles' doctrine, and the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we don't have to worry about the storms. Storms are going to come. Most of us have already experienced storms in our life. Bob, look out here, and I know you've had storms. Or you're going to have one <laughs> soon. That's the way life is, isn't it? And all of us have the big storm, which is death, hanging over our heads and heading our way. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid. It's like Scott preached last week. When you're a Christian, you only have to fear two things, God and nothing. We had one of our brothers in Christ, Tim Delina, passed away last week. He knew he was dying. He knew that for a while. And I had many discussions with him about death. And I'll say this for Tim. He was not afraid. He was not afraid to die because he had built his house on the rock and his house still stands. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for making it so clear to us, not rocket science, what it means to be a disciple, be baptized into Christ and then obey everything that Jesus commanded. We thank you for giving us your word for the price that was paid by so many Christians down through the centuries to copy it, to preserve it, to translate it, sometimes at the expense of their lives, so we can have the word in our own heart language, so we can learn and obey, please you, glorify you, and have the abundant life here and now, today, and the promise of eternal life to come. In Jesus' name, amen.